All right, as you're uh, getting settled, uh, a couple of reminders about Equipping Hour. We do publish the notes on the website, so you can uh, print those out and bring them with you, or uh, pick up a copy when you're here. And uh, we're going to spend the the next few weeks talking about um, the topic of eternal security, assurance of salvation, warnings against falling away, how all these things fit together. And, um, and then in January, we'll have uh, some different things coming up. You can check the website and find out what's coming up so you can kind of pick and choose, do I want to be at Equipping Hour or not? And um, at any rate, we'll have some fun things coming up, some, uh, some biographies, different theological topics, missionary biographies, church history, counseling, um, lots of fun things coming up. Uh, what I want you to do is uh, pull out the notes that you have there. And we're going to spend the next few weeks uh, thinking through a, a reflection on a couple of comments that Paul made in Romans 11. Uh, as we were looking a couple of weeks ago at Paul's statement about those who are cut off for unbelief and we Gentiles who have been graciously grafted in should not be arrogant toward the branches. But look at Romans 11:20. What should our response be to those who are broken off for unbelief? Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. So that's a a very severe warning for us to persevere in the faith. And Romans 11 follows on the heels of Romans 1 to 10, which was a significant treatise on the doctrine of eternal security in the gospel of Christ. And the question for us is, did Paul forget his theology somewhere between Romans 8 and Romans 11? Did we go from uncondemnable, unseparatable, to you can be cut off? What has happened? So essentially, that's the dilemma we're exploring in the next few weeks in Equipping Hour. Let me pray, and we'll get started in our time together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truths of your words, that you have composed your word perfectly, that you have communicated just as you intended And you know us better than we know ourselves, and your word truly is like a double-edged sword. It's able to divide in the inner man uh, motives and thoughts. Uh, You do critical, surgical, precision work inside of us by your word. And we want to know all of it. We want to see all of it. We want to heed all of it. Uh, Help us to do that in in the balance, the proportions um, that you have designed in your communication to us. And we pray that it would bear the fruit in our lives that you intend by it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, what happened to eternal security in Paul's explanation of the gospel? What about once saved, always saved? Have you heard that phrase? Uh, Maybe you've heard other ways to to explain the doctrine of eternal security. I want you to know that, that when we talk about the perseverance of the saints... That is the the human side when we say perseverance. A human's responsibility is to persevere. God's side of that same equation we would call preservation. God preserves those who are his, and those who are his truly persevere. And so I've entitled this series, Holding On to Eternal Security. There's a little bit of a play on words, play on theology in there. Is eternal security something that I have to hold on to, or or am I held on to by God? Which is it? And and the answer is yes, biblically. And and in in the danger of uh, elevating one doctrine over another, uh, we want to see how all of these things fit together. So the question on the table for us in the next few weeks is, how do eternal security commands to persevere, and warnings against falling away, how do these three ideas, three realities, cooperate in the Scriptures? 
And there's some possible answers we could come up with. Uh, one possible answer is they don't cooperate because the Bible is schizophrenic. Right? Have you ever thought that? Uh, the Bible doesn't know what the Bible's talking about because over here it says this and over there it says that. And, and, and frankly, if that's true, if, if the Bible disagrees with itself, the proper response is to close it and walk away. The stakes are very high in this question. We believe wholeheartedly that the Bible does not disagree with itself, that apparent contradictions are apparent, (laughs) that you and I are limited in our ability to understand, uh, and also we're limited in the depths to which we have studied. You'll find that uh, all of the uh, contradictions that seem like contradictions at face value in the Bible, just read, just keep reading. Just keep studying. God wrote to be understood. He wrote with clarity. God did not have a speech impediment. God knows who we are. He invented language. He invented language receptors. He communicated in language for the express purpose, not that we would be confused and entangled in unsolvable contradictions, but that we would know him and live lives that please him. So we start with that foundational principle. We recognize, okay, the first answer is not right. The Bible's not schizophrenic. These must work out somehow. And if I don't know how they work out, the fault's not the Bible. Um, I just need to give it a little time, give it a little thought, a little investigation. Second possible answer is you're supposed to just pick the verses that line up with what you want to believe and ignore the rest. Have you ever had a mindset like that about the Bible? I want to read what I want to read because it agrees with what I already believe. And who wants to upset the apple cart, right? Uh, Don't rock my theological boat with some Bible verse I don't want to look at. Uh, That is not why God gave us the scriptures. Again, I I want to make an argument for consecutive exposition, that we don't avoid verses that we don't like, that we don't uh, harbor and harp on our favorite theological concepts, that your devotional Bible reading is just not your favorite verse every day, again and again and again, but you read the whole Bible, right? Right? Uh, A little thought on Bible reading. Many of you in this church, uh, because you've been through Build or Wellspring, uh, you were made to read the Bible in total over the course of a year. So if you've been through Build or Wellspring, ostensibly you have read every word of the scriptures by this point. And hopefully what is produced in you is, is a desire to keep reading every word of the scriptures for the rest of your lives. And uh, Janet and I have been on the same McShane reading plan for the last, what, 20 years? Um, 18 years? 18, she says 18, okay. Um, And there always seem to be new things in my Bible. I don't know if you have this experience, but like, wait, who put that verse in there? Has that been there the whole time? Um, The the Bible is so rich and we should embrace all of what God has to say and just keep studying, keep reading. Uh, A third possible answer is, well, that's exactly why I don't read the Bible. I read this over here, I read that over there, they disagree with each other, so... I'll just let the theologians answer those questions. Um, I'll just listen to sermons. I'll just listen to podcasts. I'll just get my ideas from contemporary Christian radio or Christian culture uh, or Christian TV or some other source. Or you know what? Done with the Bible altogether. Um, All of those, of course, would be the wrong answers. You might have other possible answers. um, But the real answer is they do cooperate. The doctrine of eternal security, commands and encouragements to persevere, and warnings against falling away are not contradictions in your Bible. They are all critically important parts of God's revelation to us Christians for his purposes. I want to flesh out some of those purposes, but what we're going to do first is just see that they do coexist in the Bible, and they're not enemies of each other. It's not like, well, I got this verse over here fighting against that verse. They don't fight with each other. We make them to fight with each other in our own minds or in a theological argument. They're not fighting in the Bible. They like each other. Okay? And I want to show you a couple of verses where they like each other in the same verse. Um, so, first of all, just the observation, Romans 8 and Romans 11, Romans 11 are in the same letter. Right? We just kind of walked through that. Um, Paul's not schizophrenic. He didn't forget his theology. We moved to chapter 11. He affirmed eternal security, uncondemnable, unseparatable, and he said you can be cut off for unbelief. So even if we don't understand it quite yet, those two things are in the same letter by the same human author underneath the same divine author. They don't contradict or fight with one another.
All right, so let's look at just a couple. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5. By the way, if I say things that um, make you want to ask questions, this is an open forum question-asking type of place. Um, a question on your mind is probably a question on someone else's mind, so don't be shy. Um, if you want to boldly, courageously text me a question anonymously, that's fine too. Uh, if you want to email questions throughout the week, that works too. And uh, we'll read them out loud here with your name attached. No, I'm just kidding. They can stay anonymous. Um, but we, we want to be able to field questions on this topic. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 says, if we back up to verse 4, uh, we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Right? That is Fort Knox eternal security verse right there. And verse 5 who are protected by the power of God. Again, this is Fort Knox, top security. You are protected by God in your salvation. It's undefiled, unfading, can't be taken away. Done deal. But how? What is the means by which we are protected by the power of God? Verse 5. Through faith. Whose faith? God's faith? No, Christian, your faith. What is the means by which God locks down your eternal security as a Christian? In this verse, your belief. Wait, Peter got schizophrenic in half a verse. <laughs> or they fit together, right? They're friends. Um, Philippians 2 is another good example where uh, these two realities of human responsibility uh, and divine sovereignty or divine work uh, hold hands Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, human responsibility, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do or to work for his good pleasure. Wow, Paul got schizophrenic again in the span of two verses. Who's working? You are, Christian, and God is Christian. Uh, Paul says something similar in Galatians 2.20. Um, who lives Paul's Christian life? I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live, I live by faith. In the... Paul, are you, are you living the Christian life or are you not? Who's doing this? And, and the answer is yes. The Christian lives the Christian life empowered by God. These things work together. Philippians 3.12 I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's an interesting one. Who's holding on to Paul's eternal security? Jesus is. Who's holding on to Paul's eternal security? Paul is. Um, th these things are not refuting one another. They're working together. Um, and there are other examples that are there. Uh, let me give you the longer answer to the question. Uh, do these three realities go together? Eternal security, encouragements to persevere, warnings against falling away. Do they work together? Here's a long answer in letters A through G parts. And this will be the sort of summary outline for the next three weeks. Um, we're going to look at the first one this morning. Letter A, all three are in the Bible. Do they work together? Well, the first answer to that is all three of those realities are biblical. They're all scriptural. And if you make, try to make one of those things stand without the others, you will not be speaking God's truth in God's proportions. And that's what we want to do to represent God's mind on, on any topic is what does the whole Bible say about a given topic and how does God say it and what proportions does God say it? It's going to help us understand how these things fit together. So the first answer to the question is they all exist in the Bible. And if our starting point is the Bible is God's word and it never lies and it's always true and it's reliable um, and, and any problems and misunderstanding are human problems, not divine communication problems. If we start there, then really letter A is the answer to the whole thing. Well, they're just in the Bible. And even if I can't fit them all together, I heed them all because I depend on every word that comes from my God. And even if I can't sort them out, how they all work together, I'm going to heed the warnings, I'm going to take the encouragements, and I'm going to trust my eternal security to God. I can do all of those things, even if I can't sort out the relationships. 
Secondly, letter B, security belongs to genuine believers. Security belongs to genuine believers. And we're going to tease that out a little bit. There, there are ungenuine believers. Right? If you just take the word belief through the Gospel of John, you're going to find out lots of non-Christians believed things. And so just simply referring to the word belief as if it equals regeneration all the time in your Bible is not going to be helpful. But a genuine believer is secure. Uh, Letter C, genuine belief inevitably results in obedience. That's what we were talking about this morning in Romans 12, 1 and 2. A genuine belief, genuine faith, is an abandonment of myself unto God. There's a significant and important inseparable relationship between faith and obedience. In fact, obedience is the tangible expression of faith. When you obey God, you are saying, God, I don't trust myself and what I would do. I trust myself to your ways. I want to yield myself to what you would have me do. That is a tangible expression of faith. And you don't separate those out. As if you could have a faith that never obeyed. Well, you don't believe God if you don't obey him. You believe you. And so we don't want to separate those things out. And a genuine belief inevitably results in obedience. Letter D, false profession will eventually be manifested. False profession will eventually be manifested. And that assumes the reality of false professors. Right? It, it, embedded in that very description is, is the reality that there will be those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this, this, this in your name? Right? It's the reality of 1 John 2.19 that some went out from us. Why did they go out from us? To demonstrate that they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out from us to demonstrate that they were never of us. It's that tongue twister that it's a comforting reality that when you see someone defect from the faith, what is on display is a lack of genuine faith to begin with. And listen, this is a, this is a reality, the, the reality of phony belief, of really convincing masquerade of a professing Christian who's not regenerate. That was such a troubling reality, even in the first generation of the church, that Paul didn't know who was going to defect and was heartbroken over those who did. And that John had to write to his own audience, listen, this is why people have walked away. You need to know this. But false profession will eventually be manifested. Um, Maybe in this life, definitely in the next. Letter E, warnings in Scripture serve God's purposes and our well-being. God's warnings in Scripture serve God's purposes and our well-being. As we're going to see, the warnings are used as an evangelistic tool with pretenders. Uh, Those who think they're in Christ but aren't need to have the foundations of their self-deception removed. And they need to embrace Christ. And the warnings have been used to draw people who thought they were Christians into genuine, real Christianity. And maybe many of you, of you in this room would have that experience. Made a profession of faith at some point in life. Thought you were a Christian. Had Christian culture, Christian surroundings, Christian peer pressure. You had the Christian car, Christian radio station, Christian dog, Christian tattoo, whatever. You had all that stuff. But never knew Christ. Right? And the warnings serve a very kind purpose of God to reveal the true state of the heart. And bring someone to genuine faith. That's one purpose. There are other purposes. Uh, The warnings exist for genuine believers to keep them close to the Lord, dependent, to relinquish the hold on idolatries that are so tempting, uh, to make us flee the the, the peer pressure that is the world, always trying to squeeze us into its mold. Uh, The warnings are there to actually help Christians love the Lord better. And I believe the warnings are there as a means by God's grace of actually causing Christians to persevere. Is it possible that that, uh, if left to themselves, Christians would go off the rails? Yes, of course it's possible. And, And God's warnings are actually means that he uses to keep Christians in. And listen, if we have a a fundamental problem with uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, 
and, and how they work together. It's possible we just misunderstand God's use of means. That God uses means to accomplish his sovereign purposes. He always has. Um, there are some things he just does outright and doesn't need any intervention, right? Uh, let there be light. But, but a lot of God's dealings with humanity revolve around God using imperfect, even sinful means to accomplish his good and glorious purposes. Who shared the gospel with you? Um, what did you do as God was opening your heart? You believed, you surrendered. At some point you said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And you could sing the song, I've decided to follow Jesus. And, and if you highlight the means as if it was the ultimate means, you will be unbiblical, right? Like the only reason that you're a Christian is because you decided, I don't think so, you were dead. But, but when you followed Christ, God made you alive and he didn't circumvent the means of your will and your decision-making. He went straight through it, rebirthed it, and all of a sudden when you didn't want Christ, now you want Christ. And you decided to follow him, not because you had an inherent capacity to make a God-pleasing decision from your spiritual deadness, but because God made you alive and you chose him. It's okay to say, if, you're, if you want to call yourself a Calvinist, it's okay to say, I decided to follow Jesus. Because it's true. Because God uses means to accomplish his purposes, especially in salvation. It's true in sanctification as well. What does God use to keep Christians in the faith? To cause them to persevere. What does he do to preserve them? Warnings are one of those means. There are other means. Fellowship, right? You remember the the instruction in Hebrews 10? Don't neglect the uh, assembling of yourselves together. Um, Why? There There is a subordinating, explanatory conjunction in the next verse. You know, the you gotta go to church verse. Don't neglect the assembling. Why? Because... If you fall away from Christ, there's no more Savior, but only the expectation of wrath and judgment. In other words, our fellowshipping together is a means of God preserving his own. And I believe God uh, taking a believer home prematurely is a means of God preserving his own. Right? We have the evidence in 1 Corinthians 11 of those who mishandled the Lord's table and slept, which is God's kind euphemism for the death of a believer. In other words, God took people home prior to their apparent uh, trajectory of apostasy and defection from the faith. Um, God uses means to preserve believers. Warnings are part of those means. Letter F, eternal security and assurance of salvation are not the same thing. This is really critical. Eternal security is outside of you. That's Fort Knox, locked up, 1 Peter 1. God has his own secure. Everyone whom Jesus paid for is paid for. He purchased with his own blood people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people. Uh, Romans 8, 28 to 30. All whom he foreknew, he also called. All whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I left out predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's an unbreakable chain from eternity past to eternity future, and no one falls through the cracks. That is eternal security, and that is in the business of God's doing from beginning to end, and no one can break it. That's different than assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is subjective. It's how I feel about it. It's what I think about my place in the unbreakable chain of salvation. Am I one of those for whom the unbreakable chain can't be broken? It is really the question of, am I a genuine believer? Is there real, genuine, spirit-produced faith in my life? And listen, assurance of salvation comes and goes. It comes and goes. It's subjective. It has to do with your thoughts and your feelings. And a genuine believer can lack assurance and be eternally secure. But you don't presume on it. If you have a burdened conscience and you're not on short accounts with sin you actually don't have a right to assurance of salvation. Um, What you need to do is believe. I'm getting ahead of myself. Eternal security and assurance of salvation are not the same. We need to sort those things out. Letter G, faith is the key to perseverance. You're asking yourself, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Cling in faith. And you know what a clinging to God faith does? does 
surrenders itself in trust to God's command. It's going to produce an obedient life, right? I don't gin up obedience in order to secure my salvation as if my justification depended on my works, but I cling in faith. And what does a faith-filled life look like? A yielded sacrifice to God that does whatever he wants. So if I don't see obedience in my life, I could say, well, what I need to do is perform in order to make sure I have my status in heaven. That's Roman Catholicism. That's human religion. That will send you to hell. That will kill you. But if you're looking at your life and you're saying, man, why, why is it so hard to obey right now? Why do I want to keep running my own way? Root out the theological unbelief that underlies your disobedience and go and cling to God in faith and yield your life to him. Okay, so that's where we're headed with all those things. Um, that's the longer answer. Shorter answer is they work together. Read them all. Heed them all. Okay. So let me just give you a thought um, for the concerned heart for a moment. Um, I don't know that this is axiomatic or universally true, but in my experience, the, the, the troubled Christian heart that says, I don't know if I'm going to make it, is probably not the one who's on their way to apostasy. Um, the, the, the troubled Christian heart, when, when, you, when you draw them out and you ask, well, do you love God? Yeah, and my love for God is just awful. Do you, do you believe Christ? Oh, he's my only hope, but I don't trust him very well. Um, do, do, do you, do, is your life yielded to him? Oh, I want it to be. But I find this residual depravity in my heart and these desires, where do they come from? Oh, I'm not as concerned about apostasy in that person. Typically, the apostate running from Christ doesn't care about obedience doesn't have a humble, yielded heart under the word of God and isn't worried about losing his salvation. But an arrogant haughtiness has caused him to presume upon the grace of God, assume he's a Christian because of either past experience or intellectual knowledge, and he is hellbound. That's terrifying. He's hellbound and doesn't know it. So if you're the, the tem- tender, troubled heart, I, I just don't know if I'm secure. Um, I can't grant you assurance. <laughs> But I can tell you, look to the scriptures and soak your, your, your heart in the things we're going to study together over the next few weeks, and I think you'll have ground for assurance if, if, if you're in the right spot. So let's, let's look at these together. This morning, we're, we're looking at letter A, um, and it is simply this statement, these three realities are in scripture. Eternal security as a doctrine, warnings against falling away, and encouragements to persevere. Uh, let's start with eternal security. And, and let's just start categorically with the word saint. Right? Not a football team. Uh, not uh, someone who did a certain number of miracles during their uh, medieval life. Uh, and, and then saint in the New Testament get bequeathed with this title and we pray to them. Right? Um, what is a saint in the New Testament? It is exactly synonymous with a genuine Christian. Have you been born again? On day one, sainthood. It just means you're set apart. That's all that word means. It it means you are set apart unto God. You are a saint. To the saints at Corinth, etc. So, embedded in that word, one who is, by God's work and by identity, set apart unto God. Boy, that's that's an eternal security title. You belong to him. You weren't that, and then he made you that. Who's going to unmake you that? You're a saint. You're set apart. Um, And then a second broad category are the perfect tense verbs in salvation passages. Okay, we need a little bit nerdy and grammatical here for a moment. Okay, so we have verb tenses, ones like the future, past, present, future, right? Then you got weird ones like the future perfect and stuff like that. Let's just talk about the, the, the past tense, something happened. Present tense, something is happening. Future tense, something will happen. Okay? The perfect tense is something did happen. I'm going to go this way. Something did happen in the past, 
and the results continue into the present. Okay, so let's just pull this apart a little bit. Um, I took out the trash. What tense was that? Past tense, okay? Um, It's just a bare statement that something happened. I'm not making any statement whatsoever on the current condition of the trash can. I took it out, you know, three years ago. I'm not making any other claim than that at some point in time, it happened, okay? Present tense, I'm taking out the trash. Oh, finally, something's getting done around here. Or I do take out the trash, meaning a regular sort of iterative practice, habitual practice of regular activity. Um, What about future tense? I'm going to take out the trash at at, at halftime or whatever. (laughs) There's a future reality that's coming. And I'm not making a statement about how often or even what time, but just that I will. But, But future tense... I mean, sorry, uh, perfect tense. I have taken out the trash. Well, that means that I did something in the past and the trash that are continuing into the present. So if I have taken out the trash, not a need to take it out right now. That's been taken care of and the results are standing. When salvation is described in the New Testament over and over and over again, the perfect tense is used. Something happened in the past, and the results of that continue into the present. And many times, explicitly in the context, continue through the present right into the eternal state. Okay, so let's just look at a couple of those. John 5, 24. Someone with a nice, loud voice. Find John 24 for us. And then someone else find Romans 5, 1. Early bird gets the worm. Early loud bird gets the worm. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Okay, some critical verb tenses in there. He who hears and believes my word, present tense, as Jesus has eternal life, present tense, that is, possesses eternal life currently as Jesus speaks these words. And, perfect tense, has passed out of death into life. Boy, that is a staggering statement about the nature of salvation. You only get saved once. And once it's done, it's done. And this past activity, which is the transference of someone from death into life, stands. That doesn't ever unstand. That doesn't get undone. And so just watch those perfect tenses. Pay attention to those and and watch a past activity with continuing results into the present. Uh, Romans 5.1, who's got that one? Emmett, thank you. Okay, this one technically is an aorist participle if you're a real grammar nerd, but it functions one slot back in a time sense to function as a perfect tense reality. Just to like clear the air. Cameron, if you've got your... Greek New Testament out. I just didn't want to get in trouble. Okay? Um, So, uh, having been justified, that is, having been declared righteous by God, perfect tense, we possess peace. So, listen, in the past, God declared believer righteous. And that righteous standing remains as a present reality so that we actually presently, in an ongoing way, possess peace with God. You were declared righteous in the past, that righteous standing remains into the present, and you now have or possess peace with God. Staggering reality. You were an enemy, at enmity with God. He made peace terms, the cost of his own son's blood, and now you stand forgiven, at peace, declared righteous. Continuing results into the present. So uh, the rest of those you have there are just a sample, but really the New Testament is full of salvific content, contexts that employ the perfect tense to demonstrate something that was done in the past that continues. In other words, God did something and it stands. Uh, those are remarkable evidences of a security of salvation. Uh, next are the more explicit statements affirming eternal security for believers. Um, Let's just take a look at Romans 8, 28. 
and following. I mean, this whole chapter is sort of the classic passage on the unbreakable chain of salvation, the unseparatable, uncondemnable status of believers. But I want you to see this chain again in detail. We know that God causes all things, verse 28, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Why why are all things in God's universe wrestled under his sovereignty for the express purpose of your good, Christian? Because, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, uh, which again is foreloved, chose to set his affections on before time. He also predestined. The destiny, taken care of ahead of time. What did he predestine believers to? To be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And everyone whom he predestined to look like Jesus, he also did the necessary things required to get us from point A to point B. Called, that's the effectual calling of God at the point of salvation where he makes you a Christian. And those whom he called, he also justified. That is, there's no one that he called to salvation that he did not declare righteous. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. That's a future reality in a past tense verb. Uh, Again, proleptic aorist, if you want a category for that. Um, the, The reality is that it's so certain in God's mind that it's as good as done. And there's no one who was declared righteous by God who is not glorified. In other words, everybody makes it. Rock solid, Fort Knox, locked up security in God's plan. I want you to see another one. Uh, Turn to John 3.16. This is another one of these unbreakable chains of salvation in that uh, football goalpost verse. Right, that everybody knows or memorized. Of course, in America now, you, you do run into people who say, what are those numbers behind the goalpost? And I haven't seen it in a while. Does that still happen? It doesn't really happen anymore. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I want you to notice some key features here. God loved the world. And and side sermon here, but world has 21 different usages in John, 21 to 22 different meanings in the New Testament and in Greek literature. And even in the English language, world is a a big, huge word that means lots of different things. It never means every human being who ever lived past, present, and future. But at times it means the anti-God system of this cosmos, right? Sometimes it means the whole taxable Roman Empire. It means a number of different things. But the point is, the, the object of God's love was a lot bigger than Nicodemus thought and a lot badder than Nicodemus thought. And God loved that, that big, bigger than uh, Jewish male Pharisee that Nicodemus was that he was talking to. A lot broader audience. And way worse off than Nicodemus thought was the human condition or the condition of his own heart. God loved the world. To what end? Or, or um, to... to what happened next? What, what, what did God do out of that love for that world? He gave his only son, right? Gave doesn't mean Christmas gift with a box and a bow. Look, here's this present. But gave means crushed at the cross. It pleased the father to crush the son so that he might justify the many. Um, and, and why did God give the son of his love? So that whoever believes in him shall not perish. And literally, the whoever believes in him is is a participle that says all the believing ones in him. Every single believing one in him shall not perish. Listen, that is a statement about rock-solid security. Every genuine believer, here's a promise, shall not perish. But what? He shall possess eternal life. That is an amazing statement about the unbreakable chain of salvation. You believe in Jesus Christ, the son of his love that he sent, you will not perish. So who can undo John 3.16? You just can't break that chain. And so uh, a lot of verses I've given here um, affirm the eternal security of believers. I want to move on to the next category. And this is the category of 
encouragements to persevere. Encouragements to persevere. Um, so there's one, two, three, four, five verses at the first bullet point under that one. Uh, let me have five volunteers to look those up, and we'll just do those in order. So first one to get to 1 Corinthians 16, 13 wins. These are encouragements to persevere. Okay, here's a command. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. All right, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Thanks, Doug. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, That is a command to labor at the level of your faith and your salvation. Wait, I thought it was a gift. Yes. Here's a command to work at it. All right, next one, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Stand firm and hold to what you were taught. Another command. First uh, Timothy four sixteen. Okay. Again, an, another command with the promise that if you hold on to these things. You ensure salvation for you and for those who hear you. Okay. And then last one, 2 Timothy 2.14. Okay. Um, What's at stake in 2 Timothy 2.14 is what is taught matters for people enduring the corollary stated there is uh, you teach bad doctrine and you ruin souls for eternity. Uh, those are huge stakes. By the way, the, the corollary to, to every one of these encouragements to make sure you persevere, hold on to the faith, is what if I don't? And we'll get to that one. Okay, let's talk first about uh, some benefits and results of perseverance. I'll give you the, the references here. We'll just summarize these. If you persevere, salvation is promised. If you persevere, life is promised and confidence in death. If you persevere, there will be a fruitful harvest for your labor. If you persevere, you will lay hold of eternal life. If you persevere, you have reconciliation with God. If you persevere, you have faith and a good conscience and you avoid shipwreck. If you persevere, you will reign with Christ. If you persevere, you inherit the tree of life no second death, authority over the nations, and you get the morning star. What's the morning star? End of the book of Revelation tells us it's Jesus. You get him. What do I get if I persevere? My crown kept, safety with God, and seated with Christ. And finally, a relationship with God and eternal inheritance. Those are inducements to persevere. Look what's ahead of you if you will just hold on, Christian. Those are sweet encouragements. Who, what is the identity of those who do persevere? John 8 tells us that true disciples that continue in Jesus' word are the ones who persevere. Second Peter tells us that it is anticipating and growing Christians who persevere. Those who are looking forward to Jesus' return and Christians who are growing in their faith. Those are the ones who persevere. And 1 John 2.19, I read it earlier, those who remain with us, those are the ones who persevere. What are the enemies of perseverance? What do you need to watch out for? Hebrews 4, disobedience. What is a threat to Christian perseverance? Sin. Specifically, unchecked sin. And for you tender hearts out there, this is not a statement about Oh, I sinned. I must not be going to heaven. Of course you sinned. And you'll sin tomorrow and the next day and the next day. But it is unchecked, unrepentant sin 
that is the pathway to apostasy that will reveal you to be an unbeliever. It will reveal you to have been an unbeliever. And so Christian, persevere. Keep your sin in check. Take it before God who loves you. Confess your sin to him. Revel in the forgiveness that Jesus purchased. Repent in keeping with uh, the Spirit's work of true repentance in your heart and life. Disobedience, unchecked disobedience is a threat to perseverance. Secondly, false teachers and false doctrine are a threat to perseverance. Uh, It is so critical that Christians guard pulpits. That Christians hold elders accountable. That, that Christians have their Bibles open and have discernment. So like Ephesians 4 says, they're not blown about by every wind of doctrine, by those who with craftiness come in with deceit. But you've grown up into maturity and you know the truth when you hear it. Idolatry, immorality, testing the Lord and grumbling in 1 Corinthians 10 are all threats to perseverance. A grumbling heart is a pathway to apostasy. You need to know that. Complaining about God and everything that comes along. That is unbelief. And if unchecked, it will demonstrate that you don't have belief at the foundational level. So confess your complaining and grumbling heart. Seek to turn from those things. It is a threat to perseverance. Carelessness is a threat to perseverance. Weariness and losing heart is a threat to perseverance. Laziness is a threat to perseverance. What are the keys to perseverance? Abiding, love, fight, and work. Abiding in Him. That just means to live, to remain, to dwell. Abide in Him. There's a whole theology of abiding that needs to be unpacked. But stay close to Jesus. Stay in a regular, yielded, clingy faith dependence on Christ like you need him because you do. And keep yourself in his love, Jude 20 and 21 says. Um, Jude closes with that just remarkable statement of security. It's worth reading. It's just another example of where these twin realities of an encouragement to persevere and the promise of preservation walk hand in hand. I can't find Jude. Where is that? Right before Revelation. Okay, thank you. All right, listen to Jude 20 and 21. You, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And then look down at verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Wait, he just said, keep yourselves in the love of God. And God is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To him be glory forever. Uh, Those are two sides of the coin. God's side is preservation. Our side is perseverance. We're commanded to persevere. God promised to preserve. A key is to fight, 1 Corinthians 9, 23 to 27, and to work, 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. So eternal security is in your Bible. Encouragements to persevere are in your Bible. And the last category, warnings against falling away are in your Bible. What are the references for this whole list of references? Um, Don't fall away. Here's what happens if you fall away. The book of Hebrews I I used to think, oh yeah, Hebrews 6 is that really troubling passage about people who fall away. Actually, the whole book of Hebrews is a warning. Christ is better than everything, so don't walk away from him. If you walk away from Christ, you have nothing. Okay, but uh, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, uh, it's all warnings about not falling away. But I do want to turn your attention to Hebrews 6. While you're getting there, I can't resist Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another. And just footnote, if you weren't here when John Anderson preached that text, uh, look it up on the website. 
rehearse that warning for your own heart again. In Hebrews 6, verse 4, In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him useful to those who For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles... It is worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Listen, don't take your eternal security doctrinal statement and white out Hebrews 6. God knows we need this warning. And as you're looking at this warning, look at it in its details. Notice the pronoun changes and understand who the author to Hebrews is writing to before this in the let us and after this in verse 9. But beloved, we have better things in mind concerning you. And notice the thems and the theys in the fall away section. Those are important. Genuine believers don't fall away. But here's a category in Hebrews 6 we must be aware of. There are people who have tasted of the heavenly gift become partakers of the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, there are people who have a front row and they have of real, supernatural Christianity and they have merely tasted it. They don't truly belong to Christ. By the way, every one of these descriptions in this text about those who fall away is not used elsewhere of genuine believers. Even though it sounds really Christian-y, These are people who think they're Christians and they're not. And frankly, they're people that we think they are Christians and they turn out not to be. So don't take your eternal security confidence and squish out this warning. In fact, all of these warnings against falling away, read them, heed them. All of the encouragements to persevere, read them, heed them. And God's promises to absolutely secure those who are his, believe them, cling to them. Let's pray. God, thank you for these three realities in our Bibles. Uh, Let us read them all and believe them all. Let them have their work in our hearts and do the things you intend by them. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends. You're dismissed.